The book of Revelation, chapter 22. I don't remember when we started the book of Revelation. Two years ago, okay. There are those who have been faithful through this whole series. I appreciate that. Two years ago, Revelation. Now we're here at uh, <clears throat> the last part of the last chapter. So it's been a uh, it's been quite a, a journey because it is it isn't really a journey that much into the past as much as it is a journey into what's yet to come. And so uh, to deal with it from the standpoint of what God revealed to the Apostle John and and try to make sense of it for our time, uh, that has been the challenge, but I, I think that the Lord has, uh, has helped us all to understand it better. Again, the book of Revelation, uh, the word itself means to reveal, uh, and it is the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he has done is also wanted to reveal the truth of what is yet to come. Tying in everything from Genesis to Revelation. We've done that as well. And it's amazing how much of Genesis is brought to our remembrance in this last chapter. Because if it is the last words to be written, to be given as the, the canon of Scripture to the church then it is significant for God to speak to us about how it all ties together. You can't have an end without the beginning. And so the Lord says, I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the first and the last. And I'm the Alpha and the Omega. But when he says that of himself, we need to realize that he's presenting that to us while all along he is, he's got no beginning and he has no end. (laughs) But for us, we need to know there's a beginning and there's an end. So this is what he is for us. Somewhere in there, there's the beginning, and somewhere in there, there's the end, but it never ends. The journey, as C.S. Lewis used to always point out, the journey never ends, if you know Jesus Christ. The journey into truth begins and ends with Jesus Christ, but it never ends. So an interesting concept. Hard for these finite minds to understand completely, but one day we'll understand, one day we will know, and one day we will look back, forward, sideways, and realize how wonderful our God is to be as faithful as He's been and to be faithful to the end, which isn't an end. That we have to keep reminding ourselves. 
There isn't an end. So we want to begin looking at the text from verse 10. We covered a little bit of this last week. And I want to start in verse 10 for clarity and for context as we look at the last chapter, as the last part of the chapter. And John is again revealing to us or dictating to us, as it were, what is happening at this time in in his receiving of all of these things. And he said, do not seal the words. And, and, he, and he's saying that the, the angel says to him, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is at hand. And if you remember, we said that in Daniel, it says, uh, you know, God says to Daniel to seal up the book until the time. And now the angel says to John, now you reveal it. It's not a closed book anymore. So whatever we think is a secret, it's not a secret. It's revealed. Every mystery that we talk about in the scriptures, the mysteries is, was hidden at one time. They're not hidden anymore. So that, that's another thing that the, uh, the, that the book of, uh, of Revelation teaches us, that mysteries are revealed. We won't know the fullness of it until the end, but the fact of the matter is, we're, we've, give, we've been given enough of what's taking place, enough of what's going to take place, so that we can be ready for the coming of Jesus Christ. And then it says in verse 11, He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And I mentioned that this one particular verse says, you know, that at the very end, when, when, it's, when it's said and done, you are what you are. If you've come to Jesus Christ, you'll be holy. You'll be set apart. You'll be righteous. But if you reject Him, you remain in in your filthiness. And I'm going to explain that a little bit more here in just a moment. Just to make a little bit more sense of that. Now we go on into the next verse. And the next verse is Jesus once again interrupting and and I love Jesus' interruptions. He can interrupt any time. Wouldn't, wouldn't you say that we could just allow Jesus to interrupt any time He wants? And I think that that's very important to understand because He does bring interruptions to our lives. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to the next interruption, the great interruption where He, you know, just one day when we don't know it, He just shows up and takes us home. That's the kind of interruption I like. But, but Jesus, being who He is, He can interrupt us any time. And He interrupts here, in a sense, what's going on. And He says, And behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to His work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. If you tie this in, if you will, to Hebrews uh, chapter uh, 12, where, where it, it says that, that He is the author and the finisher of our faith, that gives us really a, a better indication of what he means when he says, I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the first and the last. He's the author and the finisher. He's the beginning of our, of our new life. And he's, he's, he's at the end. He's the end line. He's, he's the one we're headed toward. So what we need to remember is we begin with Jesus, we end with Jesus. We don't start with Jesus like if we're, it's a trial offer here, you know. And then we decide, well, I don't really like it. 
You got to continue. You got to persevere. You got to trust. You got to rely on His faithfulness and all. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do His commandments. Now, again, the, 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 uh, the angel speaks. Blessed are those who do His commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. I don't think any of us want to be in that list. We, we really don't want to be in that list. If there's something that, that ties together the book of Genesis with the book of Revelation in terms of beginnings and endings, it is the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's what ties Genesis and, and Revelation and everything in between. It is the finished work of Jesus Christ. I want you to consider something. In, in the Garden of Eden, going all the way back to Genesis, chapter 3. Why is chapter 3 significant? Because in Genesis chapter 3, that is where sin is brought into this world. Sin is brought into the life of the creation that God had made. So in the Garden of Eden, the Lord, God, killed an animal to provide skins as a covering with which to clothe the first two naked sinners. We know who they are. Adam and Eve. If there had been a, a post office in, in, the, in that day, their faces would have been on the top two. The FBI's top two. Because they were the only ones. This sacrifice, what God did in killing an animal to provide skins for their covering, this sacrifice was set before them prophetically as the finished work of Christ. Because the Lord didn't just unzip, you know, the, the, the skins off of these animals. He had to kill the animals for their skins. Blood had to be shed. Blood is the constant here when it comes to the finished work of Christ. And then later on, their son Abel, chapter 4, not long after that initial event, that initial happening... Abel brought his own lamb to God as a demonstration of his faith in the finished work of Christ, prophetically speaking. But, nonetheless, it was a demonstration of his faith in what God had presented as, prophetically, the finished work of Christ. And therefore, he offered to the Lord a more acceptable sacrifice than his brother Cain. And we know what happened after that. More sin took place. But God has devoted much attention in the scriptures to this fundamental and significant theme, and that is the finished work of Jesus Christ. And he closes the book of Revelation with a final lasting look at that finished work, which for all eternity will be the wonder of heaven. For all eternity we will praise God for the finished work of Jesus Christ. 
The finished work of Christ resolves what we will always be. The finished work of Jesus Christ resolves where we will always be. And the finished work of Jesus Christ resolves whose we will always be. And I want to use this as an outline tonight for a few of the verses that we're going to finish with tonight. So look at verse 11. The finished work of Christ resolves what we will always be. The finished work of Christ resolves what we will always be. Notice in verse 11 it says, He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. Surprisingly, and I, and I say this purposely and carefully, but surprisingly there is no greater divide in all of this dying world today than that division between the saved and the lost. There is no greater divide. And I have to tell you, that's a thin line. We're not talking about a no man's land that exists where anybody can kind of come and, and just kind of, well, you know, you're, I'm kind of saved and I'm kind of lost, or I'm more saved or I'm less lost. No, you're either saved or you're lost. And when you think about it from the eternal standpoint, it is a great divide. Although the line is thin. When Jesus was on the cross, listen to this. When Jesus was on the cross, he separated two thieves. He separated two thieves. In fact, he separates them still. Think about it. One of them trusted in the dying Savior and would find himself in paradise at his own death. But the other thief rejected Jesus and is today lost forever in hell. Think about that. David, the, the psalmist king, in Psalm 51 verse 5, he said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. I mean, that is our death sentence. I was brought forth in iniquity. I was shaped, in other words. I was formed in iniquity. And in sin my mother conceived me. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. And it is only through the finished work of Jesus Christ that man can be fashioned anew and made fit for heaven. We cannot make ourselves fit for heaven. No matter how hard we try, no matter how many works we try to do to please God, we in ourselves cannot please God. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus came to die. That's why Jesus came to shed His blood as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's why Jesus did everything that He did because not one of us could ever make ourselves fit for heaven. Consider that apart from faith in Christ and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, a person can go on sinning until they die, and at that point their character is fixed forever in a horrible mold. 
You die in your sins, you're always in your sins. That's the point of this verse. Well, the one before this. Verse 11 of our text. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. When you die, wherever you are, that will be your character for eternity. The wicked will go on being wicked for all eternity. That one thief that died blaspheming the Lord is no doubt blaspheming still. The lights don't go out, folks, when we die. Maybe in the body. But not in the person that God made us. The lots continue to sin. And therefore they continue to suffer. The righteous, on the other hand, continues in their righteousness and it is, it is eternally blessed. Eternal bliss. Eternal joy. Eternal happiness. Eternal provision. Did any of us deserve that? Not one of us. Not one of us in this room deserves that. You know what it does to me? It humbles me. It humbles me to no end to think that God would give me that kind of blessing. Knowing who I am. Knowing what I am. Knowing what I've done. Knowing what I haven't done. The cross. And this is why, for me, I love to preach the message of the cross of Jesus Christ. But the cross stands between sinner and saint, separating each other from time and eternity. The finished work of Jesus Christ resolves what we will always be. Secondly, the finished work of Christ resolves where we will always be. Look at verses 12 through 15 once again. And behold, Jesus said, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I'm coming quickly. The idea behind the words behold and quickly is to say to, to us all, be ready, keep looking, keep waiting, because at any moment I'll be there. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, blessed are those who do His commandments. Now, some of you may have a modern translation that says something about those, uh, blessed are those who wash their robes in His blood, something to that effect, I think. Uh, it comes from a different manuscript. I, I 
tend to believe that this particular manuscript that we use in the King James and New King James gives it to us straighter and right. Blessed are those who do His commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. By the way, our, our robes have been washed already. So we're already there. And then verse 15, But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. So to the Pharisees who would reject Jesus, he solemnly said to them in John 7 verse 34, he said to them, You will seek me and not find me and, notice what's underlined, and where I am you cannot come. Where I am, you cannot come. Now that's significant because it, it is Jesus saying to those who do not accept Him, to those who reject Him, to those who are against Him, well, you can't come where I am going to be. And you can't come where I am. You'll even seek me, but you won't find me. In essence, you've been seeking me. You're looking for Messiah. Messiah comes, and you said, well, get out of the way, because we're looking for Messiah. So where I am, you cannot come. So there's a place, then, that, there, that will be reserved for those who believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, just as there will be a place for those who don't. But if you look in contrast to the life of the Apostle Paul and you look at his joyful testimony, there's something that is found in these words that I want to share with you tonight. It's Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. Because in this we realize that no matter what happens to these bodies of ours, whoever is in Christ finds their joy. Listen to this. Paul said, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live on this earth today in Christ, I mean, that's, that's, that's life. But to die, when this body dies, that's gain for me. I will be with him. And, and he goes on to say that in just a moment, because he says, but if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor, yet what I shall choose I cannot tell. So, you know, if I live on in the flesh, well, it's a blessing because I'm serving Christ. And uh, it's going to be fruit for my labor with you all. But then he says this, For I am hard-pressed between the two, the very two things. Whether, of course, to, you know, uh, as he says here, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Or to, or to hang on and, and, and just keep teaching you until the Lord takes me. But that's what he's saying. It's far better to depart and be with Christ. So there's a place. There's a point of, of departure. Well, there's a point of departure from here, but there's a point of arrival to depart and be with Christ. So, there are those who will be with Him. We have the promise of His coming. If you're taking notes, write that down. We have the promise of His coming. Number one. And secondly, we have the provision of the cross. And both of those things sustain us. Both of those things sustain us, strengthen us, provide for us. The promise of His coming, number one, and the provision 
of the cross. And what a joy to have these promises in verses 12 and 13 of our text. You look at verses 12 and 13. Behold, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the the first and the last. You know what what the Lord is saying in that word behold is, is He's saying, look, look for me intently. Look with, with eyes wide open. I am coming really fast. I'm coming quickly. When I come, it's going to be boom. And my reward is going to be with me. If you will, picture, picture a family awaiting a father's return from another city, you know, maybe gone to do a job somewhere, gone to do work somewhere, and and, and father says, you know, when I get back, if you've been real good, I'm going to bring something back for you. So remember, while I'm gone, you need to be good. And then he calls along the way, or he does Skype, or whatever they call it, FaceTime, I was always saying, or he just calls... And, and, and he says, how are you guys doing? You, you guys are going to be good because when I come, I'm going to bring a, a nice little reward for you. I mean, a nice little gift. It's got to be good. So everybody's all excited, you know. They can't wait. And, you know, kids don't have any concept of time. So when's dad coming? Yeah, he's coming in a couple of days. And they're staring at the door. He's not going to come in it but until a couple of days later. But, you know, we... we but that's the excitement of children. That's why the Lord speaks to us as children and says, Look, I come in at, at a time you don't know when. But He says, I'm coming with something. I'm coming with a reward. Have you been good? Here it is. So, in a sense, that's what we see Him saying, you know. Not, not Paul here, but in the text that we're reading, verses 12 and 13. And I thought of Isaiah 62, verse 11 today, because it's, it says there, Indeed, the Lord has proclaimed to the, end of this, uh, to the end of the world, Say to the daughter of Zion, Surely your salvation is coming. There's a reward. Complete salvation, the fullness of the salvation that we've been promised in, in Jesus Christ. Say to the daughter of Zion, Surely your salvation is coming. Behold, his reward is with him. And his work before him. Do you know what the work is before him? The finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It is the finished work of Christ alone that opens up the way through the gates of the city to the tree of life. As we read there in verse 14, Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates of the city. That's what verse 14 of our text stated. It is of utmost importance to state that doing, uh, to state that doing His commandments does not earn us eternal life. So let me tell you this: doing His commandments does not earn us eternal life, because it is the evidence that we have been granted eternal life in Christ Jesus and access to the tree of life. It is the evidence that we have come to Christ. It is the evidence that we have been granted everlasting life in Jesus Christ. So the doing of it means that, you know, certainly you are, in fact, a believer in Jesus Christ. But as verse 15 tells us, there will be those who will be outside or without. Without means outside. 
They will be outside of the city. They will be without the city. They're described as dogs. Now we all like dogs in our day and time. One of, one of my favorite things to, 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 to start looking at after the, the new year in February, usually in Mar- February is usually when it happens. You know those, those Westminster dog shows on TV and I, I record them because I just like to look to watch all those dogs. Just look dogs. And they primp them up and, you know, comb every part of their body, you know. And, and I, I just keep thinking, I could never have a dog like that. All I've ever had are scruffy ones, you know. They just, you try to, you, you, you know, you go and you take them to the dog place and they fix them all up. They put little bowls on them and then they come and get in the dirt and all kinds of stuff. I'm not good enough to train them like those other people, you know. But back in the Middle East, in the East, uh, the, the very thought of, of dogs was not really domestic. Dogs weren't all that domestic. Except in some cultures, for example, the Egyptian culture, they domesticated a lot of dogs. But, but uh, mostly in the Middle East, they didn't do that. So they're called dogs, first and foremost. Then they're called sorcerers and, and whoremongers, sexually immoral, uh, murderers, idolaters, and liars. So that term dogs encapsulates all of these. As I said, it was a term in the East for all vile, unclean, and injur- injurious persons. If, if you were called a dog, you were, that's what you were being described as. Vile, filthy, unclean, and harmful. It is going to be bad enough for the lost to be in torment in hell, right? I mean, it's going to be bad enough for them to be lost in the torment of hell. But their agonies are going to be intensified by the knowledge that they will be without Their agonies will be intensified by the knowledge that they will be outside of the city of the New Jerusalem. In essence, they will have complete knowledge. And you need to listen carefully to this. In essence, they will have complete knowledge of what might have been theirs in heaven, but is forever lost to them now. That's painful. Their sins will haunt them forever. Consider the rich man in Lazarus. What Jesus taught in Luke chapter 16 as a parable. Yet he used the name of a person. One of his best friends was named Lazarus. We don't know that this was speaking of the same person. But nonetheless, there was a rich man And there was a poor man. They both die. And, and, I, and I love the way that Jesus describes their death. Because in verse 22 of Luke 16, he says, So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. So the beggar was carried, the rich man was buried. And then Jesus said this, And being in torments in Hades, he, speaking of the rich man, lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. You can read on later on, unless you've, you've been reading it 
recently and, and you realize that Jesus says, you know, that the man says, could, could you just send Lazarus over to where I'm at and, and bring some water, even with his finger, dip it in the water and bring it to me because where I'm at, it's really uncomfortable. It's, it's just dry as can be. Of course, the Lord says, no, I can't do that. There's that great divide, you see. Yet, we are told that he could see Lazarus. Think about that. So they will be cut off then from all that is holy, all that is good, all that is noble and beautiful. They will be cut off from these things. They will remember neglected opportunities. You ever have those times where you regret not doing something that you know would have been a blessing maybe to somebody but you just just didn't do it and then all of a sudden the only thing you can remember is the opportunity is gone. Maybe somebody else got the blessing. But can you imagine at the end of all things and in the state of, of... complete separation from God, that they will remember neglected opportunities time and time and time and time again. And listen to this, remorse, despair, misery and pain, things that many of them never experienced in this life will be forever their unbearable burden to relive over and over and over and over. The finished work of Jesus Christ resolves where we will always be. Where will you always be? My prayer is that we will all together be in the presence of Jesus Christ our Lord. In His kingdom, in His presence, in his city, before his throne, forever and ever. Lastly, in this point, before we go on, of course, the finished work of Christ resolves whose we will always be. To whom will you belong for eternity? To whom will you belong? In verse 16, Jesus again speaks. And he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. The suggestion here, of course, is that (laughs) these are messianic names, messianic titles, the root and the offspring of David. You know what Jesus is saying in the root and the offspring of David? He's saying two things. He said, I, I am both the creator of David and I am a descendant of David. Isn't that wonderful he, that Jesus can do that? The root and the offspring of David, that is what signifies that he is Messiah. For the Messiah is indeed the creator. As Paul has made it very clear in the book of Colossians chapter 1 and in other places. And he is the offspring of David because... The Messiah from Genesis chapter 3, 15, we've been told the seed of the woman 
would come through a certain line, Seth to Noah to Noah, from Noah on to Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob through a whole line of others, down to through David, and there it is, David, and then from David all the way down to Jesus. The bride and the morning star. The point of verse 16 really is this, that that is, who, that is whose we are and always will be. We will be His. We will be His. We will belong to Jesus Christ. Jesus, the lover of the church. Just go back and read chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation where He talks to the churches. He loves the church. There's no doubt that Jesus loves the church. Again, Jesus is the root and the offspring of David. Jesus is the bright and the morning star. In other words, the light of all creation. We belong to Him. This is also the first mention of the church since the letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. First mention since chapters 2 and 3. From chapter 4 on to where we are now. No mention of the church. Church is taken out. So let's thank the Lord. Let's thank the Lord for the finished work of Jesus Christ. Let's thank Him. Praise the Lord. Verse 17, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts, Come. (laughs) I love that. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. The welcome, the invitation, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. We talked about water not too long ago, the beginning of our, uh, of our look at chapter 22. But more than anything in this verse, it, it is fitting that the whole of Scripture should close with a reference to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit and the Bride say come. Because He is certainly the one who has inspired every chapter. The Holy Spirit has inspired every chapter, not only of the book of Revelation, but every chapter in our Bibles, every chapter in the Word of God. He has inspired every verse, and He has inspired every line of Scripture. He is the all-knowing wisdom and power behind the miracle of all the Word of God. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have come to realize how powerful the Word of God is. How true the Word of God is. How powerful the Word of God is. How reliable the Word of God is. How inerrant the Word of God is. And the Word that stands out from the Holy Spirit who has inspired all of the Word of God, is one word. Come. Come. It is the grandest word of the Gospel. Come. It was first heard, listen to this, it was first heard in the days of Noah. 
book of Genesis. It was first heard in the days of Noah when the Lord was about to pour out His wrath against a sinful world. And the ark that, that Noah had been commanded by God to build, the ark was, was now finished and salvation was being provided. And the Lord is inside the ark. And we're told in Genesis 7 verse 1 that the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark. Come. There's the first invitation. Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. How prophetic is that to tie that verse with verse 17? The Spirit and the bride say, Come. Salvation is provided. Salvation is complete because of the finished work of Jesus. And then Jesus himself would use that word to call all the weary and all the burdened to him when he said in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Come. I thought of another word and another time. When Jesus was on his way to Bethany to visit his friends Lazarus and Martha and Mary, and he gets word along the way that Lazarus was sick and they wanted him to come quickly, Jesus didn't. He took his time. And he was kind of nudged in a sense, Hey, Jesus, Lazarus is your friend. I mean, he's not doing well. You know, Jesus never had to rush anywhere, did he? He never had to hurry. A couple of days later, when they get to Bethany, Mary and Martha are weeping there in anguish over the death of their brother Lazarus. And... Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. They, they, they showed that they had such faith in Jesus. But of course, Jesus said, you'll see him again at the resurrection. Well, we know that, Lord, but, but we don't have him now. And of course, Jesus said, I, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, he's going to live again. And he goes and He's directed to the, the tomb of Lazarus and he tells everybody to remove the stone and everybody says, oh Lord, you don't want to do that because I mean he's been dead four days now and the, you know he opens the door and you know it's going to smell. He stinketh, it says in the King James. And Jesus wept. They saw him and they said, oh, how he loved this man. 
And then Jesus said something that no one expected. He said, Lazarus, come. Simple. I know it says in our texts, come forth. What Jesus said was, Lazarus, come. And he had to be specific because if he just said, come, everybody would have risen around there. The power of the resurrection and the life. Come. But in our text, it tells us that the water of life is offered freely. Water clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God. Today, the world is a wilderness indeed, isn't it? A desert barren to the soul of men. People are dying of spiritual thirst all around us, and yet here is the water of life and an invitation. Here's the invitation for all of us to take to all of those who are dying, just like we were at one time in our lives. Actually, not just dying, we were dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But then we were given the water of life through Jesus Christ, the water of life that comes forth. Like rivers, torrents of living water. People are dying of spiritual thirst all around us, and yet here's that water of life. Consider it's spiritually insanity. Listen, it is spiritual insanity that keeps men from throwing themselves on their faces before God and drinking of the water of life. It has to be spiritual insanity. The enemy has deceived so many people. But he has not deceived you. Have you come to the water of life? And have you taken the water freely? Because it's free. The price is paid. Verses 18 and 19 of our text. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy or the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. A tremendous warning. But you know where that takes us back to? The book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. First of all, before, even before the serpent appeared in the garden, in Genesis chapter 2, even before the serpent appeared in the garden, the Lord had given Adam a warning. The warning had already come. In verse 17 of Genesis chapter 2, it says to him, you know, he first of all tells him, you can eat of all the trees, the fruit of the trees of all the... Uh, you can eat the fruit of all the trees in the garden except this one. And this is what he says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There's the warning. So we see the importance of the warning to those who would trample over and tamper with God's Word in general and the book of Revelation in particular. So now in chapter 3 of of Genesis, consider that Eve, when encountering the serpent, she added to and subtracted from what God had said. She didn't say everything exactly because, first of all, God had spoken to Adam. Adam had to give that to, to Eve. But when confronted by the serpent, she, she said 
basically the same things that were said. But in, some, in, in a couple of places she added, and in a couple of places she left out. So think about that. You go back to read what it says. If anyone takes away from the words, and before that, if anyone adds to the word, you see, God will add to him the plagues that are written. If you take away, that's taking out. You're tampering. Then you will be taken out of the promise of the tree of life. And so we're back to the tree of life. So her sin then, the sin of, of Eve, opened the door for all that followed. The curse. The banishment from the tree of life. Eternal peril and doom. But the scope of the warning has to do with the specific prophecies of this book. The Lord continues to guard this book of Revelation that so many have scorned, even those who consider themselves Christian. We've talked about it time and again. Of people that say, we don't want to study the book of, of Revelation. It's, it's, too, it's too weird. It's too, too many things we can't understand. And the Lord is saying, just read it. Right? Didn't we read back in chapter 1 that there's a blessing in just reading it? Verse 3. Read it. But then the more they build up, you know, animosity toward those who are saying, listen, we believe in the book of Revelation. You guys are crazy. Yeah, well, we're supposed to be brothers in Christ, right? But you still think we're crazy? Look at the world today. Look at everything that we study from chapter 6 all the way through 19. And everything that we covered there is, did we not make reference to things that are happening even to this day in the Middle East where everything has been a focus about for all these centuries? Listen, God guards the book of Revelation with as much passion and fire as the flaming sword that guards the tree of life. That's how serious the book of Revelation is to the Lord for us to understand it and not to add to it and not to take away from it. And so the prophecy begins with a blessing to those who read it and ends with a warning of a curse for those who tamper with it in all of Scripture. I would take that uh, warning to heart lastly verses 20 and 21 he who testifies to these things says surely I am coming quickly and we all say amen three times in this chapter Jesus interrupts three times he says behold I'm coming quickly behold I'm coming quickly surely I'm coming quickly Three times. You know, for Jesus to say something one time is, is pretty certain that we, you know, we ought to pay attention to it. When he says something two times, we, we need to pay extra attention to it. When Jesus says something three times, you better pay attention to it. Surely, I am coming quickly. And our... Our words are the last words of the book of Revelation. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Even so, come. And then lastly, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Wow. We made it, but I'm not finished yet. In a word, 
the last word is really last words. Two in particular. Glory and grace. Glory and grace. Jesus' last word is very clear throughout this chapter. I am coming quickly. It seems like a long time to us since he gave that promise how long ago? About 2,000 years ago. Seems like a long time, doesn't it? But as Peter tells us in, in, in Second Peter, where, oh, I didn't put Second Peter. Read, read Second Peter chapter three, verse eight. But beloved, do not forget this one thing: that with the Lord, a, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Now remember that Peter says, "With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day." So from Jesus' standpoint, I'm coming quickly means that for him, 2,000 years isn't long at all. So you have to understand it from that perspective. So you see, at any moment now, he might part the sky. (laughs) At any moment, he might take his saints home to glory. And I would say, praise the Lord. Tonight would be a good night for that. And that is why the church responds by saying, even so, come, Lord Jesus. So may the unmerited, undeserving, undeserved grace of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, be with you all. Grace, the undeserved, unmerited favor of the Lord. May it be yours until that day. And of course, on, on that day, untold blessing. Untold blessing. Can we all say amen to that? Shall we all stand? Because I want to sing Amazing Grace. You'd like to sing it with me? I thought of that because, again, the last word given to us is about grace. <coughs> Excuse me. Grace that we should never forget. Grace that we should never take for granted. Grace that is ever ours through Jesus Christ. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind. But now I see T'was grace that taught My heart to fear And grace my fears relieved How that grace appeared the hour I first believed through many dangers toils and snares I have already come 
Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. When we've been there ten thousand years, bright shining as the sun, we've no Then when we first begun. Lord, thank you for such amazing grace. Thank you, Lord, for taking us through this wonderful book. And while we still can't say we know everything. We, we, we've been enlightened to know a lot more than we did. I pray, Father, that we will continue, Lord, to study your word, to be encouraged by it as we look to the day of Jesus Christ. Father, speak to our hearts, especially, Lord, where we have struggled, where we have at times even faltered and failed. And always help us to remember that you are a merciful God, a great God, a loving God. But these are dangerous times and these are times that we cannot take anything for granted. Help us to understand these things, Lord. And if there are things that we need to lay before you now and and say, Lord, I, I just can't go this direction any longer, then, Lord, let that happen. Let that be what you will do in our hearts. Cleanse us, purify us, change us, mold us, shape us more and more into the image of Jesus so that when he comes, we certainly shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And we look forward to that day. Wherever he is, we shall always be with him in glory, and in safety. In Jesus' name, amen.